Amen. Well, good evening again, and welcome to Grace Harvest Baptist Church. Uh, we are certainly glad to see you here tonight. Welcome also to those that are viewing live stream from home or those watching via GHBC's YouTube. Now, I know I should never assume so, but I would think most of you would probably know the story of Noah and the ark. It's one that is well known as a children's Bible story. And many of us heard the story as children. In fact, many in the secular world have heard of Noah and the ark, yet do not believe the truth of it. You see, it is interesting that many secular people look at this now as just a children's story. But when we really think about it, it is the most cataclysmic event to come upon man since the creation of the world. The world has Hollywoodized it, making it so much less than the truth we see in Scripture. Look at some of the misrepresentations we have seen in that, on that in, the, in film today. I mean, it's just one bad representation after another that you see in scripture because hollywood has made it into fairy tales and even in some cases science fiction it is so rare when we see an accurate account of exactly what is recorded in scripture that i felt like we needed to focus specifically on that here is here is an example of what i mean by inaccuracy in the world and this is a very small example Gina and I, uh, like most of you grandparents and parents, play Christian's children's music while we're in the car with our grandkids. And so much so that we've heard the same songs over and over and over again, right? And if you're a grandparent, you just tune that stuff out. If you're a parent, you say, man, that's enough of that. We've got to cut that stuff off, right? But after a short period of time, the parents will turn it off. But grandparents, we just tune that out. Or maybe it's because we're just a little more hard of hearing. Right, Kathy? I'm telling you about this because there is a song on one of those playlists about Noah. See, it just so happened one night we were bringing Jake, our grandson, to Awana that I heard something in a song that was inaccurate according to Scripture. You see, it was really small and it was really quickly said so that it would be almost unnoticeable in fact i've heard these songs over and over and over again and yet i had not noticed it until that night the inaccuracy i'm referring to was and is critically important and i'm going to share that with you during our time together tonight but not just yet i'm going to keep you in a little suspense so let's talk a little bit about accuracy and the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture some of you are aware that the elders and the pastors uh, attended a G3 conference last September, and the title of that conference was Just Thinking About the Bible. And one of the preachers there, he was, well, he was one of our favorites, Stephen Lawson. And I'm going to quote some of what he said about those two points, beginning with what he said about Jesus and the inerrancy of Scripture. Quote, Jesus believed that inerrancy of Scripture, he believed in it. He has been proven to not be only a credible witness, but in all his teachings he referred to the divine authority of the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, 8, 17, 12, 40 and 42, Luke 4, 18 through 21, Luke 10, 25 through 28, Luke 15, 29 through 31, Luke 17, 
32, John 5, 39 through 47. And I could go on. You see, he quoted from the Old Testament 78 times. The Pentateuch alone, 26 times. He quoted from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. He referred to the Old Testament as the Scriptures, the Word of God, and the Wisdom of God. The apostles quoted 209 times from the Old Testament and considered it to be the oracles of God. The Old Testament in hundreds of places predicted the events of the New Testament and as the New Testament is the fulfillment of and testifies to the genuineness and the authenticity of the Old Testament, both Testaments must be considered together to be the Word of God. End quote. Do you believe this book is the inerrant and infallible Word of God? You see, the goal of Satan is to distract us in any way that he can from what God's Word says. If he can make us doubt what Scripture has to say about anything, then maybe we won't believe that it is the inerrant Word of God. You think about that for just a minute. Here are five examples that Jesus himself mentions that the world doubts. One, Adam and Eve. Jesus quoted Genesis 1.27 in Mark 10, 6 through 8. Two is Noah and the flood. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But Jesus mentioned that in Matthew 24.37. Sodom and Gomorrah, Luke 17.28-30. The second coming, Matthew 10.13. Jonah and the great fish, Matthew 12.38-40. You see, Jesus quoted the Old Testament more than anyone else, maybe other than Paul. But when he did, he quoted those things that the world today considers to be fairy tales, made up, not accurate. Now tonight I'm not going to recount to you the entire story of Noah and the flood, for, but I am going to give you a synopsis of it to a point. You see, the entire account of Noah and the flood can be found in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, but I will be focused on how we can see God's salvation for his people through the salvation of Noah and his family. Tonight we're going to be looking at Genesis 6, 5 through 7, 16. And I titled tonight's sermon, Noah, God's Choice. See, I thought about Hope Floats, but that was just a bad, a bad, bad Hollywood movie. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of the doctrines of grace. It describes the soteriological doctrines that are unique to Reformed theology, which is Calvinistic. You may have also heard of the anacronym TULIP, which is an anacronym for the doctrines of grace that summarizes what the doctrines of grace represent. I had a copy of the doctrines of grace as quoted from the canon of Dort 1618, uh, handed out to you so you would have a reference to that document for later study. But Steve Lawson had another way of describing these. Quote, each of these five doctrines, radical depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, irresistible call, and preserving grace, supremely display the sovereign grace of God. These five headings stand together as one comprehensive statement of the saving purposes of God. For this reason, there 
is only one point to the doctrines of grace. Namely, that God saves sinners by His grace and for His glory. These two realities, God's grace and glory, are inseparably bound together. Whatever most magnifies God's grace most magnifies His glory. And that which exalts God's grace is the truth expressed in the doctrines of grace. End quote. We are all easily distracted at times, each and every one of us. I will tell you just a quick little story. I was up here leading worship, and my daughter's car drove down the road, and I just happened to glance out the window, and my daughter comes to church here not very regularly, but she comes every once in a while. And so I noticed that she was coming, and my brain immediately stopped thinking about the song that we were singing, and it started thinking about, hey, there's Sarah's car. And so Sarah's coming to church. And so I completely forgot what was... And if it wasn't for the people behind me singing, it would have been a disaster, right? But that's the way that we are. And we're, we're kind of like... Well, we had a, we had a lab, Labrador retriever. And she was squirrel crazy. And so what would happen is no matter what was going on, no matter what she was focused on, if a squirrel came in her peripheral vision... It was, it was on. You see, she was easily distracted too. And we can all be distracted that way. And that's what Satan's goal is. Don't forget that. Satan's goal is to distract us from the truth of God's Word. But as Christians, we're called to read and focus on Scripture, accept, accept salvation is by God's grace through faith, to magnify Christ and to live for God's glory. This is basically the summation of the five solas. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Here's Steve Lawson again. Quote, the central truth of God's saving grace is succinctly stated in the assertion, salvation is of the Lord. This strong declaration means every aspect of man's salvation is from God and is entirely dependent upon God. The only contribution that we make is the sin that was laid upon Jesus Christ at the cross. The Apostle Paul affirmed this when he wrote, From him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11.36. This is to say salvation is God-determined, God-purchased, God-applied, and God-secured. From start to finish, salvation is of the Lord alone. End quote. Now with that, as our backdrop, let's read our text for tonight. Um, it's, this is a long text, but I still will ask you to stand if you're able. It is Genesis 6-5 through Genesis 7-16. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent on the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, 
And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now this is how you should make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You will make a window for the ark and complete it to one cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. As for me, behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of heaven, a breath of life. For under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and the animals after their kind, every creeping thing of the ground and after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself all, some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourselves. And it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, too, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep their seed alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all Yahweh had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, by twos they came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now it happened after seven days that the, flood, that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day all the fountains of the great deep split open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast of its, after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to, Noah, came to Noah in the ark by twos of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And Yahweh closed it behind him. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you bless the reading of your word tonight, Father, that uh, Father, this story is not just a story, Father. This story is history. Father, help us to look at that tonight in that very way, Father, that it is the history of your people. And Father, help us tonight as we, as we hear your word proclaimed, Father, may it, be, uh, may it be a balm to our hearts. 
Father, may we be ready to understand. May we be ready to hear. May, we, may our hearts be ready to receive. And Father, if there's anything that I say tonight, Father, that is not of you, Father, it may be quickly, may it quickly be caught, cast away. Father, we praise you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in the story of Noah, although tonight it will be only partial, we are going to see four evidences of the doctrines of grace. First will be man's total depravity. Second is God's grace towards Noah. Three is Noah's faithful obedience. And four, God's provision of salvation. So let's first look at man's total depravity. And this is in verses 5 through 7. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I had made them. Now we could actually go back to verse 1 here, but we really don't have time to get into the detail of those verses as that would be another in sermon entirely. But let me give you uh, an explanation of verse 4 which is regarding the Nephilim, because I realize that every time you open the book to G the book of Genesis chapter 6, uh, that comes up in everyone's mind, and I want to make sure that we, we uh, talk about that now. Verse 4 refers to the Nephilim and helps us to understand just how bad the wickedness of man was at that time. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, I have a quote from him, which is the position that I hold, and I believe Pastor Mark holds as well. And this is a quote. The people welcomed demons to come into them, cohabitating with women, and the fruit of that was satanic alliances, horrendous children that carried on the wickedness to its extreme levels. End quote. See, it's easy to see that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Imagine this. Every thought, every idea, every motive, every imagination, every deed, every action, and every result were evil and an expression of the fallenness of man. You see, that is the total depravity of man right there. Now, that is such an interesting thought here that we should look at the comparison to what Paul says and writes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, referring to believers before they were followers of Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we weren't any, we're not any different. They were not any different. They were not any different from what was going on in the days of Noah. You see, it sounds very familiar. We can see here that Paul is referring to the same kind of wickedness in his day as in the day of Noah. And it is, again, the same as today, folks. It is the nature of sin. 
sin came into the world through Adam and will not be removed until that final day when Christ returns to set up his earthly kingdom. And it's just magnificent that we are going through Revelation right now in the end times and we will see that return of Christ as we go through that with Pastor Mark. Looking back at verse 6, there was no one and nothing good in the world at that time and God was so fed up with the sin of man that he regretted that he even made man. Now, can God change his mind? No. One of his attributes is his immutability or the fact that he does not change. So that cannot be right. So here's what Matthew Poole says in his commentary about verse 6. Because he is unchangeable in his nature and counsels, perfectly wise and perfectly happy, and therefore not liable to any grief or disappointment, but this is spoken of God after the manner of man by a common figure called anthropopathia, which whereby also eyes, ears, hands, nose, etc. are ascribed to God. And it signifies an alienation of God's heart and affections from men for their wickedness, whereby God carries himself towards them like one that is truly penitent and greed, destroying the work of his own hands. You see, we know God cannot change because His Word tells us it cannot change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord God, do not change. James 1.17 says, There's no variation or shadow due to change. And John MacArthur says, God doesn't undo anything He does, and He doesn't do things He wishes He hadn't done in the truest sense. But this is to express an anthropomorphic emotion that God regretted, what he had done, similar to the statement that our Lord makes about Judas. It would have never it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. You see, this is kind of a Hebraic way of expressing consummate grief. God was grieved beyond what we can even imagine in our wildest imaginations. In verse seven we see the words blot out. It basically means erasing it altogether or sweeping it away so that it has never been. Wow, God is so displeased and so unhappy with man that he's just going to wipe him off the face of the earth. What is the result of sin and the total depravity of man? Judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. It is not hard for us to see the depravity of man because it is around us every single day. Pastor Mark talks about uh, the job that he held and what he had seen in man's inhumanity to man. And it is not hard for us to imagine that. The only way you could not see it is if you had had your head stuck in the sand. Or even worse, you had been taught to believe a lie. You see, that's that's Satan. That is the way we are distracted by Satan. We are taught to believe lies. That is what happens with our children in the school systems today. But that's another story altogether. Now we come to the second point. God's grace towards Noah. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked after God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And I believe, folks, that I just read that from the ESV, sorry, instead of the LSB. You notice that verse 8 begins with but. That means there's a sharp contrast from the previous statement. It's a contrast between Noah and the people of his day, but it's also a sharp contrast between God's attitude towards Noah and God's attitude toward the wicked people of his day. What caused the difference? Grace. That's it. Grace. God's grace makes all the difference. God's grace is, grace is not to all, but it is a particular grace. Grace that He has chosen in His sovereign purpose for eternity. Now our LSB translation uses the word favor and not grace, although some translations use the word grace. Either way, however, we know that favor translates to unmerited favor or grace. That unmerited favor means that Noah did not do anything in order to receive that grace. He did not do anything. He built an ark, but he didn't do that before he received grace. Don't miss that. That is a favorable attitude towards Noah from God, a desire for God to use Noah for his glory and to do him good. It's also the desire to bring Noah into fellowship with God and to bless him. Now we know that Noah was not perfect and he was not sinless. In chapter 9, verse 20, we see that Noah was described as being drunk and naked in front of his sons. We're all sinners, but God is faithful. That means he ascribed grace or bestows grace, and it is not dependent on what we do or what we will do. God does not change because of our actions. John Piper describes that this way. Our deeds are not the basis of our salvation. They are the evidence of our salvation. They are not foundation. They are demonstration. Don't miss that. That's exactly what we see with Noah. Building the ark was a demonstration of that salvation. One other thing we can see here is the implication that Noah was searching for God, that he found favor or found grace. That tells us something about his attitude and his walk in the world in which he lived. He was not looking around for life's purpose and all the things around him or the pleasures of this world or the sin of this world, but had a longing for, a seeking, a searching, and a desiring for God. Just as Jesus says in Matthew 6:33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This was the outlook of Noah. If we look at the lineage of Noah, we know that he comes from a long line of men that knew God and worshipped God. Although a great deal of time had passed due to the long lives of the people at that time, Noah was only ten generations removed from Adam. Adam was Noah's great-grandfather times seven. Enoch was his great-grandfather. And we know about Enoch, right? Enoch was the only one, only one of that group that did not die. did not die. God took him. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather, and Lamech was his father. And we know that other than Enoch, every one of them died because Scripture says just that in Genesis chapter 5. After each of their names and number of years they lived, it says, and he died. What you may not realize is that Methuselah, who lived longer than any person in history, died the year of the flood. Surprise, right? 
His son, Noah's father, Lamech, had died five years before that. Now, we're not told by Scripture that Methuselah perished in the flood, only that based on the number of years that he lived, he would have died the year the flood came. The bottom line is we know that Noah came from a long line of those who knew God and who walked with God. What is the reason Noah found grace? Was it because he was better than anyone else? No. There are some today that say when Noah was saved because he was better than the rest of the world. That's simply not true. In verse 9, Noah is being described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. The word righteous here is imputed righteousness, meaning he does not stand condemned like the rest of the world, but was justified by God. Since Noah was justified by God's grace through faith, he had legal standing as a result, just as we do when we are justified by faith in Christ. When we look at the words blameless in his generation, they speak not to his righteousness, but merely to his standing among the people of that day. He was an upstanding person that could be considered trustworthy. Now you can imagine, based on what we read in verse 5, that a person like that would be extremely hard to find in his day. (laughs) Extremely hard. But that's what blameless in his generation means. Scripture again records the same, uh, the name of the sons of Noah as it had in chapter 5 at verse 32 at the end of the descendants of Adam through Noah. This leads us to the conclusion that they also, along with and under the tutelage of their father, knew and walked with God as well. Steve Lawson has said that Noah, his wife, their sons, and their wives may have been the only believers in the world at that time. Eight out of approximately two million. And that is the best guess. And that brings us to point number three, Noah's faithful obedience now the earth was corrupt before god and the earth was filled with violence and god saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth then god said to noah the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and behold i am about to destroy them with the earth Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now this is how you should make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, and so forth and so on. And we'll finish with verse 22 that says, Thus Noah did, according to all God had commanded him, so he did. So let's take a closer look at this faith of Noah as we see here that it leads to his obedience. See, God sees the corruption of the world and determines to destroy the world with the earth itself. So God gives Noah detailed instructions on exactly what he is to do. Noah, build an ark. Let's talk about that ark for a minute. First, no one had ever seen an ark or heard of an ark. No one. The ark is basically a very large box with no rudder made of the hardest wood available during that day, probably cedar or cypress. We're not certain, but it's covered on the outside with pitch, which is a tar-like substance that repels water. God not only told Noah what to build the ark out of, but he told him exactly what the dimension should be. Now, unlike ships and boats we see in history, the ark was not designed to be fast or pretty, but the dimensions provided extraordinary stability in raging water. 
So a quick math lesson here for Pastor Mark. A cubit is about 18 inches long, so the size of the ark was huge. It was about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, and it was very stable. The volume of space, according to John MacArthur's commentary, was 1.4 million cubic feet, which is equal to the capacity of 522 railroad boxcars, which could carry 125,000 sheep. It had three stories, each about 15 foot high, and had various rooms or nests on each deck. This thing was massive. If you've not had, uh, been to the replica of the Ark in Kentucky, I highly recommend going there. Uh, if nothing else, just to see the scale of what he was instructed to build. Then God tells Noah in verse 17, and he will bring a flood of waters and everything is going to die except for Noah and his immediate family. Then he gives them an additional instruction. Bring two of every living flesh in the ark with him and his family for, and food for everyone and everything. Now check out the end of verse 20 because I think a lot of people miss this. It says two of every sort will come into you to keep them alive. Noah didn't collect the animals. Noah's sons didn't go out and collect the animals. God sent the animals to Noah. And finally, in verse 22, we see the obedience of Noah displayed for all to see. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He did all of this through faith. He had never seen an ark. He had never seen rain. In fact, he's not even told about rain until after the ark was built in Genesis 7-4. He had never seen a flood. And he'd certainly never seen all of the animals of the land and air in one place before. But he did all that God commanded him. Hebrews 11.7 records this about Noah. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Think about that for just a minute. Events yet not seen. That should resonate with every believer. Events not yet seen. We as believers have not seen Christ, but we have faith in Him. We were not there for His earthly ministry, but we have faith in Him. We were not there for His death and His burial and His resurrection, but we have faith in Him. We have yet to see the things that are described in the book of Revelation, but we have faith that it is to come. Our faith in Christ and His righteousness is accounted to us as righteousness, just as it was accounted to Noah as righteousness. We are justified by our faith in Christ's work on our behalf on the cross. In John 6:44, Jesus Himself says, No one can come to Me unless the Father draws them. And He continues with, And I will raise Him up on the last day. We have surely not seen that yet. But we long for that day. We believe in the Son as Noah believed in the promise. Hebrews 11.7 says, Noah became an heir of righteousness that becomes by faith. And just what was Noah doing all this time? We know he's worshiping God, but let's look at the timelines that we see in Scripture. We know from Genesis 6.3 that the flood was coming in 120 years. During that time, Noah was to be preaching to the people. What was he preaching? Well, we don't know for sure because Scripture wasn't telling us, but I would guess that he was preaching repentance and faith in God. 
In addition, we see a hundred years before the flood, Noah's son Japheth was born. Noah was 500 years old at the time. And the flood came when he was 600. Ninety-eight years before the flood, Shem was born because we don't know the exact extent of Ham's life. We can estimate 96 years before the flood, Ham was born. Now, in the time between Ham being born and the flood, each had to, they each had to grow up, help build the ark, and find wives. Remember, God is not told by Noah is not told by God to build the ark until Genesis six fourteen through sixteen, and in verse eighteen, God makes His covenant with Noah and his fam- to save his family. With these numbers, it's easy to see the ark did not take one hundred twenty years to build. It's more like 45 to 65 years. Uh, Time for his sons to grow up, find wives before God instructed him to build the ark. Now, during all that time, though Noah was worshiping God and preaching and telling people about his faith, can you imagine what people were saying as the ark is being built? Must have been awful. This had to be awful. But it was also a great opportunity for him to share his faith. We hear some of the same things from people today that don't believe in God, right? We talked about those five, five things in Scripture that, that the world doubts today. We have another picture in Scripture that shows a similar pattern of behavior of the people towards someone who was trying to warn them of things to come. We find it in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham and his family. Before Those cities were destroyed by God. By the way, an interesting note here while we're looking at the numbers that we're also 10 years, 10 generations between Noah and Abraham just as there were 10 generations between Adam and Noah. The bottom line we see here is that, though, is that Noah's great faith in God caused him to do all that God commanded. All that God commanded. In the Greek, all means all. In the Hebrew, all means all. Thus far today we've seen man's total depravity, God's grace towards Noah, or his irresistible grace towards Noah, Noah's faithful obedience, or Noah's faith demonstrated. And that brings us to our final point, which is God's provision of salvation, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. You will take with you every clean animal by sevens, male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two and his male and female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, keep their seed alive on the face of the earth, for after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. That's where we first hear about rain, y'all, right there. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did all that Yahweh had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and their sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, they by twos they came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now it happened after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day, on this day, the foundations of the great deep split open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. So the water came from below, and it came from above. 
On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to Noah into the ark by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And Yahweh closed it behind him. Noah continues in doing all that God tells him to do and he takes his family and everything else God commands him to take with him inside the ark. Then and only then, after the ark has been built, God tells Noah it's going to rain for 40 days and nights and everything on earth would die. Then we are reminded again in verse 5 that Noah did all that God had commanded him. Remember here, Noah's commended for saying yes to all God had commanded, basically meaning he did what God said, when God said, and how God said it. You see, God still executes His plans through obedient servants without expecting them or us to have the power in themselves to do the impossible. Our pastor is a prime example. Our pastor will tell you that when he was in school, he was one of the most bashful individuals you will ever meet. Would you expect that after seeing him up here? No, you would not. God can do anything. Verse 16 also makes a very specific, very important point about how the ark was closed and sealed in preparation for the flood. And the Lord closed it behind him. Yahweh closed it behind him. The closing of the ark is specifically credited to God himself. Don't miss this because the symbolism is crucial in our understanding of a sovereign God and his salvation. It's critically important for two reasons. First, this act emphasizes that it is God who is saving life from judgment and serves as a reminder of God's promise to preserve those he has saved. Perseverance of the saints. Preservation of the saints as Steve Lawson calls it. Both to Noah and to us, this is a symbol of God's ability to keep those he has saved. Christ himself said that we belong to him and no one can snatch us out of his hand. Matthew 10, 28. Second, and also of critical importance here, is the fact that the door was not shut by Noah. Remember that children's song I mentioned earlier? When every life meant to be saved by God had boarded the ark, God shut Noah and all who were with him inside. It was not Noah that shut the door. And yet that children's song said, Noah shut the door. That's bad theology. And we need to be aware of that theology when we're having our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren now listening to those songs. Pay attention to what they say because it's important. It is a distraction by Satan. Because he's saying that it wasn't God that closed the door, it was Noah. But see, that's, that, that can't be right. God shut Noah and all who were with him inside. Their security was not earned by something that Noah had done. Noah was not the one who decided when the door would be shut or when the opportunity for salvation would be lost to those outside of the ark. Don't miss that one. All of those choices were God's choices and God alone. 
if God could get all the animals to come, don't you think anyone who was supposed to be on the ark would have been on the ark? Sure they would. And it was eight of them. Listen, folks, you cannot come away from this story in its entirety and not see that the only choice given Noah was to be obedient or to be disobedient to what God asked. You see, I don't even think he could have been disobedient. See, no more than I think Paul could have said no on the road to Damascus. I don't think he could have said no. I believe he was called, and because he was called, he was obedient to that call. God is sovereign, and he makes the choices. But what does God choose? Well, everything. God chose Abram. God chose Israel. God chose Moses. God chose his prophets. God chose Jacob. God chose. God chose. God chose. It's all throughout Scripture. God chooses that which gives him the glory. We see that all through Scripture. Everybody turn with, uh, turn with me now to Ephesians 1. We're just going to go to verse 3. I think it's important that you see this. When we're talking about God chose. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, going to verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, just as He chose us, He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. I'll close with this. James Montgomery Boyce said, Having a high view of God means something more than giving glory to God. It means giving glory to God alone. This is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. While the former declares that God alone saves sinners, the latter gives the impression that God enables sinners to have some part in saving themselves. That is a lie. The story of Noah is an example why the doctrines of grace are so desperately needed in our churches today. The story gives glory to God alone and cannot be correctly perceived in any other way. It defines salvation as being all of God. And when salvation is correctly viewed in this way, then and only then, God receives all the glory for it. Only sola gratia, grace alone, produces solo, solo, solo deo, gloria, for the glory of God alone. God and God alone preserved Noah and his family through the ark for God's own glory there's a direct correlation between the story of noah and us in ephesians 2 8 through 10 for grace you have been saved and this is not your own doing it is a gift of god not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them no different from noah Verse 10 is no different from Noah. We were his workmanship created for good works. We can see here that the Old Testament and the New Testament are saying the same thing. The song we opened up with tonight by faith states in the chorus, We are children of the promise. The promise of all promises is found in Genesis 3.15. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How can we sing children of the promise? Because we believe in the promise. We are children of the promise. We have faith in the promise. The promise is Christ. Jesus Christ is the ark of safety and salvation for us. Christ is the one who protects us from the judgment through His imputed righteousness for all who have faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. The ark is a wonderful illustration of what Christ does and is for us. As Noah and his family were saved in the ark, the New Testament speaks of those who are being saved as being in Christ. Many times, many times you see this through Scripture, but here are two examples I would suggest if you want to see it then. Search your Bible for the words in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15:22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Romans 8:1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Folks, we are being saved and are saved in Christ alone. Let us close our worship tonight in singing in Christ alone. Gina's going to come. She's going to play. I'm going to pray while she's coming up. Oh, sorry. In Christ alone. <laughs> All right. Let's let me go through the let me go through the first verse because she and I got our wires crossed and she has a different song playing. In Christ alone, my hope is found. My hope is found. He is my what? My life, my strength, and my song in Christ alone. We are saved in Christ. We who are in Christ are saved. Pastor Mark.